3: Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is Yours Sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Dr Jessica Taylor is an author and campaigner whose research focuses on feminism and violence towards women. Her latest book, Sexy But Psycho, Uncovering the Labelling of Women and Girls, comes out this March. And today I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. So, hello Jess, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you so i'm gonna say two disclaimers obviously jess and i work together on various different things in the past and are both feminists who people love to hate so i do we know each other a bit i don't know why i felt like i had to say that i'm not giving you a political contract to provide ppe
2: <laughs> speak for yourself i am a delight okay a delight <laughs> People love
3: me. uh, I feel feel like I had to give this disclaimer, yeah, as if I was in Parliament and you have to declare an interest, which obviously most people don't bother to do, but I don't need to declare that interest really here. I could do whatever I like. So this podcast is all about letter writing. Now, in these modern times, very few people write letters. However, in my head, I imagine that you're quite a prolific letter writer. I imagine you writing quite a lot of angry letters. Do you want to let know? What,
2: <laughs> what? Like complaint letters have complaints like uh, about people doing things wrong. Oh my right. Do you know something? People get me totally wrong, right? I'm not that type of person at all. I'm so and right, okay. people. I don't know what it is. I am actually one of the most laid back people. The people around me, I I am such a laid back person that it takes such a long time for me to even like get wound up about anything. I might like Sort of tweet or post something or whatever, but I really I'm so slow to temper that actually I'm the opposite of what people think I am. Like, people walk all over me for months or years, and then eventually I'll just be like, and that's it, I'm done, and I sort of cut them off, and there's no drama, and that's it. Like I, I have such a slow temper, and I'm like I'm so slow to go. So like c- complaint letters, I just can't be asked. Also, I think that you might be a prolific letter writer for the
3: alternative reason to being angry, because. The way that you and your partner talk about each other on Twitter like and on social media, the equivalent in my household is my husband says, I mean, you're all right. That's the highest form of praise that I could expect. And it's meant with love, but... Like you're just
2: like really love each other. Do you write each other like really long love letters? Oh my god. Okay, so first of all, give us time. We've been together three years. We may get to the point where we start passing each other in the kitchen and be like, "You're all right." It's but... <laughs> true. i am i am I've
3: i got 15 years on your. Yeah, three exactly. Years, 18 right. okay.
2: years. We'll be yeah. we'll redo in a in a decade and we'll see where we both are. But no, actually, we decided at Christmas that we weren't actually going to do gifts for each other. We were going to make something for each other. Because because we try and do like I don't know something that's not materialistic, and we decide to travel instead. So we didn't do gifts. So this year, I actually got her this huge glass jar, and I filled it with a year's worth of love letters. So whenever she's feeling down, she can just pull one out and read them. So yeah, you're right, actually. So you you got a good measure. of Yeah, it. That, I've got your number on that. One. <laughs> I know, yeah. Got that right.
3: <laughs> I mean, that is so lovely. My brother, when he got married, uh, he married a French woman. And her friends, her French friends, had organised all these really meaningful things for us to do at the wedding. And like, then all of us rocked up from Birmingham and just got hammered. Um, <laughs> but one of the meaningful things that they organised was they bought this lovely like, sort of wooden box that they'd had made. And it had 365 individual tea bags in it, like of all different flavours of tea bags and and they were to open one each year and make a pot of tea for the two of them every day for the first year that they were married and each one would have a message from somebody at the wedding on which is a sort of similar thing like a a nice message and so we were all given these tea bags to write a little message on and my brother luke not the one who was getting married he was given a peppermint tea bag and he wrote his meaningful and loving message was peppermint tea is for knobs
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
3: so that is the love letter they would have got on that day that's so awesome. I <laughs> yeah peppermint tea is for knobs and like it, it, they would definitely have known that the, the ones that were taken less seriously were the ones written in English not in <laughs>
2: yeah yeah you've got these beautiful, um, beautiful heartfelt messages in French well, messages.
3: <laughs> so you are in fact a prolific letter writer as I suspected a, a prolific love letter writer if you put a hundred letters in there,
2: right? It's not a hundred. I said enough enough for a year. So, like, some were short and, like, were, like, little nice messages and some were long and they were all on different topics and, like, on different things. So then uh, if she's, like, stressed or tired or got stuff going on, then she can just pick one out.
3: That is the nicest thing I've ever heard. But I feel if I had to write 25 letters, it would just start to get repetitive. <laughs> start to be like... Oh, I
2: just... There's so many things that I wanted to say and I just thought it would be it would be nice. Anyway, she, so the other part of this story is that um, she's very impatient, which means she's fucking read them all. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so... So um, I said to her, like, oh, what would you like for Valentine's Day? She was like, do you want to top the letters up? I was like, "What with more?" And she's like, "Yeah." <laughs> that is brilliant. Have you
3: have you got any letters of like uh, like note from anybody? Like, we've had people who had a letter from the Queen of Denmark. We had somebody who had a letter from Nelson Mandela. Have you got any letters of like note?
2: Does it, cat? I have a funny one. You want to hear a funny one?
3: Yeah, I do.
2: Yeah, yeah I know you do because this is hilarious, and I'll show it you after to prove it's real. I got, I got a letter from. <laughs> I can't even tell this story without laughing. I got a letter from the House, the Houses of Parliament, because I was asked to submit evidence to this really important inquiry um, about some some like really serious heavy stuff about what I work on, which is at the time it was on like child abuse and stuff. And um, there was a particular part of the um, report that I'd written um, that I had said to myself. I was supposed to delete it out, so like I'd written this like really formal about these theories and about these approaches to child abuse, and then I had accidentally left the sentence in, and the sentence said basically it's all a load of bollocks, and I'd left it in the evidence, right? Anyway, I didn't know this, I didn't know this, so I submitted it and it was used as evidence, um, and it went off, and then I have an official letter. From the Houses of Parliament, from someone saying, like, Dear Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for the evidence. Like, we really appreciate it. However, we hope you don't mind, but we have removed the sentence that says, basically, it's all a load of bollocks from the evidence. And I've got it, and it's all like, it's called, <laughs> it's got like a head, it's on headed paper. And I've just been meaning to frame it for
3: ages. Oh, that is a brilliant letter. It's from like the clerks of the house who've removed yeah, it from yeah, your evidence. Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. That is, that is like my whole life that you've just described. Although I, I, I tend not to say things about, well, I mean, obviously I say a lot of things about bollocks, but I will say, I will. you will write off a question to a minister that goes on the public record and you have to send it to the clerks and they basically strip out the humanity from your (laughs)
2: question and put it
3: in in words like you would never, ever use. And so, yeah, you know, you want to say, why is this such a load of bollocks? Dear the Department for Work and Pensions, why is this such a load of bollocks? And they say, dear the Department of Work and Pensions, can you give us, A, the data for the... Count of people on universal credit and like you, the way you would never say it. So you you know, you're in you're in great company, although now I'm going to start right, and basically it's a load of bollocks. In, and see if I can get it in. I'm gonna get it on the public record for you somewhere. <laughs> to make up for
2: mine being taken out.
3: <laughs> that is such a brilliant letter. You should definitely get that framed that you were censored by the houses <laughs> of <laughs>
2: Oh, I do love that That lesson. is
3: absolutely, that is a great letter of note. Well done. Uh, that is a brilliant one. So I asked you to think of three people who you uh, would want to write a letter to. I'm going to give you the caveat that I don't believe that if you didn't pick some of the people that you love, that that means you hate them. <laughs> this isn't Twitter, <laughs> where if you don't care about everything, you're not allowed to care about anything. I assume there are many, many people you could have chosen However, I've asked you to think of three different people and the first one would be the person who means the world to you. So who would you pick for that?
2: Oh, well, that's obviously Jamie.
3: I mean, I I have to say it was obvious that it was going to be her because I have seen your Twitter output.
2: Yeah, no, and it's genuine as well. Like, it is absolutely genuine. And and I actually think that... um, i just i I just feel so lucky every single day that we ended up together there was just there was just nothing in either of our sort of life paths that would suggest that we would end up together um and it was we took the biggest leap of faith to be together. It was terrifying, and I think that you know i that's why I've chosen like Jamie for the first one because Um, we go through a lot of stuff like it's you know it's difficult living in the public eye it's difficult and like it's difficult for Jamie and there's been a lot of scrutiny of always our relationship and who we are and all sorts of things. And she she really does struggle with it. Like, it's it's a big impact on her. And and she's always there. She's always backing me up. She's always supporting me. She reads everything I write. I don't even read everything I fucking write. Like, just like... Just, and she's like, she always... Like, she reads all my books. Why? I don't know. She watches me write them. And then she'll, like, sit and read them. And, you know, she's just... I often tell her that I feel like she's the only person that's ever cared about me like all the way through with that like she she loves things about me that I didn't even know were things which gives me complexes a lot of the time but it's an incredible love like I'm extremely lucky to have her. So how did you meet Jamie? How did we meet? So we met at a protest actually we met at a protest against a Tory MP. We lived in a in the town and um, we didn't really know each other at all but we were at this protest together and we were protesting against his exploitation of local women and so we were protesting against Andrew Griffiths we were chatting there and like on from there but then we still were like we just became good friends really and we were just talking all the time and we we just became really close friends we were both in relationships with men at the time both in long-term relationships with men And we just were really close friends and then we started going to like feminist conferences together and started learning about radical feminism together. I guess we had like interests that overlapped and stuff like that and yeah, like it just, (laughs) Jamie won't mind me saying that she made the first move and like told me how she felt and I literally nearly died. I was absolutely gobsmacked. I did not know what on earth I was supposed to do with that information because I knew that I had feelings for her but I would never ever have told her, never in a million years would I have told her because I don't have the confidence. I know I come across as like really extroverted and stuff but I'm just not when it comes to like stuff like that at all. I would just never ever ever and never ever ever would have gone there like and so the fact that she did put me in this position where I was like you either tell her now how you feel or you like you're gonna have to shut this down somehow and I remember just staring at my phone and she'd message me and 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 then I messaged back, and then I was like, "Ah, what have you done?" <laughs> but then it got us in a really difficult position because we were like, "What do we do? Like, if if we admit how we feel, then it might ruin our friendship. We might never be friends again. Like, what if this all goes very wrong? What if we end up um, hating each other? What if we can't be friends anymore?" Uh, oh my gosh, it was so complicated and um, it meant us both leaving where we lived and both leaving long-term relationships and oh my gosh, it was so complicated and it was really rough for like, I don't know, four or five months where we were both like just having absolutely no idea where it was taking us and we, the more we talked about it, the more we are like, no, this is definitely what we want, we're so happy when we're together and you know, we're it, like, yeah, and so we did it and here we are now. So we've been together three years in a couple of weeks.
3: I mean, there's two things about that story that I'm gonna pick up on. One, the only good thing Andrew Griffiths ever did <laughs> Bring you two together. <laughs> Just for I never thought uh, of it like uh, um, that, Jess.
2: Yeah. yeah. But yeah, anyway, so we ended up like we've it's been a really interesting journey. We've like both been on like a real sort of journey around it, but The relationship that we have is incredible and I just don't ever, ever want it to change. Like, I, I, sometimes it scares me a little bit because I just think it's so... It's so exactly what I want, what we both want and what we need and, like, that it's so happy and that that we love each other so much and, and we just put so much effort into it all. And there's just this really cynical part of me that's like, God, I hope it doesn't go away. I hope it doesn't change and I hope that we always feel like that but you just you just don't know do you so i just wish i could yeah just sort of keep i should capture it and keep it forever
3: but you don't know but i mean i love my husband more every year not less i love him more and we're more part of each other's lives with every year that passes like you share more experiences of like different experiences like getting old and and worrying about the future and You know, so actually, I I don't love him less. I don't, I I mean, I don't, it's not the same. It's not the same, like, desperation, like, but I still get chuffed when he rings me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I still like, oh, look, Tom's rung me. Like, I still feel like that. (laughs) I've been with him for 20 years. Like, I don't think he feels like that. (laughs) But I don't think he ever did. He didn't in the beginning. So I think he's remained constant in that regard. Um, but yeah, I think that you. I think you'll go the distance. But you know, I'm not here to prejudge. I, I feel like <laughs> you really love each other, and it's not one way. It's not just you saying it;
2: she says it too. Oh no, I know, I know. Yeah, no, I know. She always makes sure that I know, and it's. I, yeah, I can't really. I wish I, I say this to her all the time. That I wish that I had the language or like the way of explaining it, but I just don't, and I just feel a bit like incompetent, like that. I just can't describe it and that's one of the reasons why I guess that I, I picked to talk about it instead because even though I just don't know if I can even do that justice either but I just feel incredibly lucky and I just sort of wish all the time like just like sort of fingers crossed because I don't really believe in anything sort of higher power or anything like that I just sort of like wish all the time I think god I hope this is I hope this is it now and that this is because if I have got this type of love for the rest of my life now then I am fulfilled that's and that, and that I'm happy and that you know that's enough for me it is
3: hard to put it into words and the only way you can do it is with fatalism I find that I say that like if like I love my children unconditionally and I would save them in a fire you know because that's the programming that I have been given but I love them partially because they're his children and they he's the one I pick like I pick you I pick you know if it was like the rest, you know well it it is I did pick him for the rest of my life but you, you can't I can't express enough that it is like you're it for me that's it you're it you're all that i need and it's not particularly flowery you're it but you're right it is hard to get it across maybe we need to be have been romantic poets from the 18th and 19th century
2: yes maybe Jamie's incredibly talented, so her poetry and she's songwrites and she's a vocalist and she plays guitar, she's incredible. It's one of my favourite things about her in the world is that I could listen to her sing and play guitar forever, I would never get bored, it's my favourite sound ever. Um, but she, you just made me laugh because you were saying, like, oh, you know, like that's it and I've picked you and it reminds me of something that she says to me. She always says to me, um, she says, babe, if you ever leave, I'm just going to put my wedding dress back on and follow you around like Miss Havisham was like, mmm, okay. I mean
3: that's creepy, but uh, <laughs> No, that's what
2: I always say to her. That's what I always
3: say. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that you feel lucky? You use the, you use the word lucky. And I, and I think that anybody who's in love with somebody who loves them back, that, you know, it seems like an absolute bloody stroke of luck and serendipity. It, yeah. Like, I, I mean, I also just married a bloke from the end of the road. And it's just like, how can it be that he was at the end of the road? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's too lucky. Like, I didn't have to travel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't have to find him somewhere. He was just always there. Like, thats it seems too serendipitous. Do you think that because of the line of work that you and I both have that there is an element of sort of disbelief of love being quite so equal I I think is and like a partnership being a real and equal and shared partnership because we are so very exposed to the alternative.
2: Yeah, I think there is that. And I think that the type of work that we do, it does change your worldview. Ch- well, it changes everything, really. It changes your view on everything. And I think you're right that there is a part of it that I guess, yeah, maybe that is why I describe it as lucky because I also know that in the majority of cases for women, they they don't have... Even if they think they do, they don't have that like proper solid sort of equality, respect, and like true sort of love where somebody actually really does love you and that it's not like, for example, me and Jay often say to each other. There's just nothing in this relationship that's, like, a big deal. Like, we don't have trust issues. There's no jealousy. There's no, there's no, like, I would never worry that, for example, I don't know, that she was interested in someone else or she would talk to somebody else or anything like that. Like, and she doesn't worry about it with me either. And, like, we're both very, sort of, sociable people. We have, like, huge friendship groups. We're constantly talking to other people. There's just no worry there. Like, I don't have to worry about anything. And it's, that's, like, pretty alien. And it's amazing
3: yeah, I mean, I, I would say the exact same thing. Funny enough, my husband once said to me, like the way that women have to worry about everything, like and micromanage their safety, and this is a sort of awakening for him of all the conversations that happen sort of post Me Too, post Sarah Everard, the sort of like, this is what we do. This is, we have to think about how we dress. We have to think about which way we're going to walk home. We're going to have to, you know, all of those things. He just was like, if you didn't have to do that, think how productive you could have been. You could have made some amazing, what he said was you could have made a feature length stop frame animation film Uh, it's like that level of detail that you have a productivity and detail you have had to put in but I think that that is it that if in a relationship it's just easy you've hit the jackpot the absolute jackpot if it is like you know I don't you know I'm not panic stricken by anything about my relationship i mean i'm plenty panic stricken about other things yeah yeah (laughs) uh, but (laughs) about that it's a treasured place to be and obviously you and i have both met lots and lots of people and experienced ourselves that everything in a relationship is a worry like you're worrying about everything like there is no moment of not micromanaging your risk your attention to every detail is so tiring that exists in the, in even good relationships. Like there is an element of worry and fear. That's, so look, we've between us, we've come up with a way of describing it. That's,
2: yeah, no, I like basically, it. Basically, like we
3: described our partners as easy. Yeah,
2: easy. <laughs> 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 they do not cause us panic, and therefore, they are good. Yeah. <laughs> It seems like an incredibly low bar, but it really isn't. It really,
3: it really isn't. It's an incredibly high bar to not have to. Because you children cause you worry, don't they? you know? Like, and that's okay. It's not. It's not necessarily just abusive. It's just that, like, he is the solid. He is the he. He's the default. Like that. There's no. I don't need to worry about anything else. Like that. He, he's fine, and Jamie is fine. But it does
2: seem like a low bar. So it does. We've, we've made it, it sound like that actually. <laughs> happy valentine's day everybody
3: (laughs) (laughs) you're easy and nay bother (laughs) so how would you sign off a letter to jamie i assume you know because you've done it a million times
2: (laughs) oh i always sign it off differently it's one of my favorite things to do but i would sign it off thank you so much for taking a huge leap of faith with me and i'm glad that it's paying off
3: So the second letter I asked you to write was to somebody who is no longer with us. So who would you pick for
2: that? Uh, I'm going to try and get through this without crying after you just made me laugh so much. So, okay, so the letter would be to a guy that was basically like a parent to me and he died just before me and Jamie got married about nine months ago. Oh, I was gutted that he wasn't there, absolutely devastated that he wasn't there. What's his name? <sighs> Phil. His name's Phil.
3: Phil. Yeah. So how did you know Phil?
2: So, Phil, he is actually like quite a bit older than my, my actual parents, and I met him when I was doing voluntary work, because I do a lot of voluntary work for years I was doing voluntary work in the community in Burton um, which is where I used to live and I actually met Phil's wife first Um, so they're both I'm very close to both of them her name's Elaine and I met Elaine first and we were both working voluntarily and she was one of the volunteer counsellors and we just got on completely and then one night the way that I met him was that he was taking Elaine home and he asked whether I wanted to lift home because I didn't have one and I was like oh that's nice of you thank you anyway we became really like close friends over like several years and he was just always there for me it was like having like a really committed dad like he they already had children they had adult children that were about my age and are a little bit older so I never wanted to encroach and this is one of the reasons why I haven't felt that I've been able to express how I felt because I didn't want to step on the toes of their actual real children who lost their dad last year and that's been really difficult for me because I've not been able to like kind of express how I feel about it yeah, so we, we ended up doing loads together. Um he ended up sitting on boards with me and we um we built a mental health center together. We stripped that place. It was a derelict building and we spent all summer rebuilding it together and he was just always there for me when I was ill, when I needed help. He he explained what a mortgage was to me, because I didn't know what the fuck a mortgage was. I I saw him. I'm on, still a player. Yeah, no, <laughs> I know. I'm still I, a bit shady on how it works. I couldn't understand it. I came to like buy my first house when I was like twenty seven. I want to say twenty-six or twenty-seven. And I was so confused. I just didn't understand it. I felt like everyone was trying to sell me something that I didn't understand what it was. And he was the first person that sat me down and was like, this is what it means. And this is what a deposit is. And like, he basically took on that role of like a dad, of like explaining stuff to me that I didn't understand. And he would contact me and just tell me he was really proud of the stuff that I'd done. Or he would tell me that he'd read my new blog and he would just like chat to me about it. And it was amazing having someone there who cared that much like I I didn't really have anybody like that in my life that cared that much about me and I never really have he would always just make the effort to chat to me about stuff and ask me how I was and like when I told him that I'd like um got my degree he got like really emotional and he really was happy that I'd got a degree and then when I told him I got on my PhD he was like absolutely like ecstatic that I'd got on a PhD and it it was just it was just amazing and I'm oh God. I just can't. I still like trying to get over the fact that he's gone. To be honest with you, because I just can't. I just can't believe it. I just still can't believe it. And, and how did he die? So um, he was really super fit and healthy. He was an athletics coach, um, and he was still quite young. And he he got he got cancer. I think he was pretty confident that he was going to be okay. I think most people were, and um, and he did seem okay. And then lockdown happened and I didn't get to see him for ages. And then there was a little break maybe in the lockdown in the summer or something. And he came to my house to pick something up. He did look unwell. And I remember saying to Jamie, like, whoa, like he looks different. And then the thing is, even when we weren't in like technical legal lockdown because he had cancer he he was like trying not to catch COVID like he was trying really hard not to catch COVID so even though I really wanted to see him and he kept messaging me being like I I really want to see you and like are you going to come up to the house and we'll make you some dinner and stuff like that I couldn't see him because he was so worried that he was going to get COVID and you know like when I left my marriage and like when I told him that I, I was gay and like and I was with Jamie and all that sort of stuff he was like totally there and he was like come and live with me and Elaine and we'll look after you and everything's going to be fine and we'll sort you out and we're, you know, no, like they've got this like part of the house that they use as an annex and they're like, you can just move in, it's fine, everything, we'll, we'll sort it out right now and they, they were just like, they were just amazing and yeah, so the reason that I picked Phil for this was actually because he wrote me a letter just before he died And he didn't tell me that that's what he was doing. He also didn't tell me he was dying. I'd not seen him in a while because of him isolating and he was getting iller and iller and he hadn't told me. And then, like, what, I don't know, three or four days before he died, I woke up in the morning to this long message on Facebook Messenger and I just knew straight away and I just thought, why has he sent me this? Like, it was this really sort of heartfelt message about how proud he was of me and that everything had done and then giving me like life advice for the rest of my life and stuff and I just read it and burst into tears because I fucking knew what it was and I turned around to Jamie and I was like oh my god he sent me this message like he must know and um, I managed to message him back and I had a very short conversation with him over Facebook Messenger and he told me that everything was going to be okay, and he was going to see me soon. And then he didn't reply at all, and then his wife texted me to say he died. And I just... It was awful. It was gutted. It is...
3: I mean, it is awful to lose somebody who you love, especially somebody who chooses to love you. They're not duty-bound by biology. Having known people who died suddenly, and people who died as they deteriorated slowly... It's a massive privilege for him to have been able to feel like he could send you a message. And like, you know, actually, like this whole podcast is about, you know, the fact that I watched loads and loads of people just put their partners in ambulances and never see them again. And thinking that they were coming home and like and all the things that they wanted to say to them so you know that he wrote that letter to you that that me- those messages to you like my mum uh, when she was dying of cancer like she she went to like proper efforts to like she wrote i mean every word we said at her funeral was written by her about how she felt about us not um how we felt about her necessarily we did she did leave us one block that we, were, we would like to talk about her <laughs> that's uh, which is kind of a uh yeah generous <laughs> cheers mom um yeah you know it was and I, I feel like that's a treasured thing to be able to do actually to say like especially in the years of Covid when people weren't seeing each other for him to have been able to it would have been a gift to him to send you that message an absolute gift
2: I was so, that was one of the things that properly sunk in when I found out a few days later that he died was that I just couldn't believe that he chose to message me I because it was it's just a such an amazing, I I don't know, I just, I don't think I feel like I deserved it, really. Um, I think that that's,
3: certainly he was probably, I mean, I don't like to speak for (laughs) Phil, I mean, we've got a similar name, my surname sounds like his first name, but other than that, I don't like to speak for Phil, but I'm fairly certain that he probably wanted you and spent his time with you wanting you to believe in yourself a bit more than maybe you do. You started this story, one notes, by uh, saying that you didn't want to encroach on somebody, uh, somebody's real children. Now, I, uh, when I lost my mum, the people who, uh, in your words, would have encroached to tell me what my mum had meant to them, it meant the world to me. Like, like it. I didn't feel like they were encroaching on me. I like to hear amazing things about how amazing my mom was to other people. Like I, that makes me feel good. It doesn't make me feel like well, she, unless it's by people who you know that she hated.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> Like you know, I'm like that. Uh, she thought you were a knob, but um, yeah. like um, like. <laughs> I really, 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 really... So uh, Andy Burnham, funnily enough, uh, the the mayor of uh, Greater Manchester, my mum gave him one of his first ever jobs um, and he... He will write me the when if I mention my mum at all on Twitter or anything. He will write me these really heartfelt messages like "I loved you, mum," <laughs> like and, and like I really love to hear it. So you shouldn't feel like you're encroaching. It's a very British thing to think that. But also, I should imagine Phil like wanted and did a lot of the stuff that he did. A, because he liked you and you were ace and all that. But um, but also like he probably wanted. He probably thought, well, she needs somebody who's gonna, like. Care about her, and he wanted you to feel cared for, and that you deserve it. I don't know, Phil. He could have. I, I could be wrong. He could have been an arsehole, but I feel like that—that that is what he was trying to say. He
2: was, yeah, no, he was, he was awesome, and I'm really, really glad that he was a part of my life. I just, I don't know, man. Just it—it's one of the first times I've had anyone die around me where I've actually reacted to it in, like, a way where I actually felt resentment, like it was unfair, not towards him, but towards, like, just death in general, because I tend not to respond like that to death, like, so... I think that's
3: what real grief feels like, actually. To me, like, I would see people after my mum had died and I'd just think, she was better than you. (laughs) You should... You know what I mean? I was, like, resentful, like, why do you get to live... Like, you know, it feels unfair and resentful. I think that's just a manifestation of grief.
2: It just, it did. It just felt so unfair. And then the other thing was that um, he'd like gone to these efforts of, because he knew that I got loads of aggro on social media and so he gave me like advice that I'm not which funnily enough it always makes me laugh because I think he gave it to me knowing full well that I wasn't going to follow it it's like it's it's something that he's been saying to me for years um that we often argued about where he would be like don't do it and I'd be like no shut up (laughs) I would do it anyway, <laughs> and then he wrote it in that final message. And I, I remember at first when I was really upset, thinking, "That's it, I'm going to change and I'm going to be different because Phil's asked me to." before he died, and then after I calmed down, I was like, "No, I'm, I'm fucking not doing it. No, um, <laughs> just carry on." How? <laughs> but that's because he was like your dad. I mean. <laughs>
3: that's what you do to your dad you say i mean my dad rings me and says the exact same thing all this i think you've gone too far this time <laughs> like you know <laughs> like you know like it's like that I'm, I'm not saying i don't agree with every word you say but i just think you've gone too far flower um and and i'm like oh fuck off you don't understand me. because that's what you know essentially when i'm with him i am 13 years old um regardless of the fact that I am a member of the u k Parliament, I am still a thirteen year old petulant child with anybody any kind of father figure so do do you um do you have like not a close relationship with your parents uh,
2: not really it's a bit complicated to be honest
3: so Phil was that to you
2: yeah, and um he was probably the first person and Elaine. Um, but I spent a lot more time with Phil, that's all, but um, it made me, I guess, It okay, so it made me realise what it could feel like to have really involved parents that, like, kept up with you and spent time with you and um, helped you when you didn't know the answer to something or, you know, got got excited for you about something that was happening, like, I'd never had that before, really, and it and, um, it, it was amazing. I remember at one point though, I found it quite um, smothering, and I had an argument with him about it when I was like twenty six or twenty five or something like that. And it didn't come out like that. I never said that to him, but I remember feeling like I was. I I remember sort of feeling like, why is he always giving me advice and telling me what to do? And then as I got older, I was like, oh shit! Like that's you know that's what exactly what you know he uh, he was trying to do and what I was the what I needed. I often felt I could have really in-depth, complicated conversations with him and he didn't half make me laugh when he messaged me when he was dying to tell me that in his way, like, so he didn't say, I am dying, obviously. He was just like, you know, I'm really, really ill and and I can't get out of bed and this is getting a lot worse now. And he said, I've just spent the last three days rereading every blog you've ever written. And I was like, why the fuck have you done that? This is a horrible waste of time. (laughs) And he was like, I just wanted to reread everything you'd written. Like a fever dream, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, Phil, why?
3: <laughs> I mean, he sounds like I mean, he sounds like my dad is with me. Like, he's like, I know you don't read every comment, but let me tell you, this is a synopsis. And I'm like, oh god, please don't tell me the synopsis of the things that people have replied to me on Twitter. Um, but that's and uh, he'll listen to this and he'll say, oh well, you hmm. will have something to say about it, uh, but yeah. It's not a waste of time to people who care about you, though. It's lovely to watch people you care about doing nice things. It's not a waste of time, is it? It's lovely. I do it. I, I do it all the time when I care about somebody. You read everything that they write. So, how would you sign off your letter to Phil?
2: I don't know. I would probably say something. I would probably say something ridiculous like, "Come back. It's shit," and I've got no one to talk to. <laughs> because I, I really did lean on him so much and like it, there's been so many things recently There's there's been some negative stuff that happened around like November and December and stuff where I had this proper urge that I just I wanted to just t- ask him what he thought or like tell him what had happened and it, and I'm still in that phase where I'm like oh shit he's gone and like I can't do that so I would probably sign it off um, that I miss him and it, it's shit and he's had his fun now and he needs to come back <laughs>
3: <laughs> Can I just say that doesn't go away, I'm afraid. I would literally give my limbs just for a five minute phone call with my mum. Just I don't I'm just like I just really wanna fucking tell her this. I just wanna say, what do you think of this? And it does get easier over years, but like and it's not even the big things. No, I know it it's isn't. It's not even no, I know. like I know. it's not like it's not even like when I got elected for the first time that I wanted her to know that. And people say, Oh, you know, you must have really you know, said that she didn't say that. It's not even that, it's just it's just the stuff I would have called her about and it's the smaller stuff actually. I remember my dad saying to me, um, when Margaret Thatcher died, it was about three or four years after my mum had died and my dad rang. I rang him and said oh my god have you seen the news and uh, he was like "That oh gosh you know it's the first time he's ever said this to me and bear in mind in this period of time like my brother had had two kids had got married like I'd got like you know I think I, you know I was like I was elected onto the council and I was selected as the candidate so like big things had happened and you know, I just I just today more than ever just wish your mum was here to see this.
1: Oh. <laughs> I like, Margaret Thatcher died.
3: She'd have loved this. <laughs> just like, as if this is the thing. We'll be back to hear Jess's final letter after a short break. In the meantime, why not check out another podcast from the team behind yours sincerely?
1: Hello, I'm Dave Berry, and I am fascinated by my next door neighbour. His name is Neil Srinivasan, and he's a leading cardiologist. Since I moved to this particular part of London, Neil and I have started to become friends. Our polite greetings over the fence turned into garden barbecues and drinks down the local pub. But with unfettered access to someone with a job that is so far removed from my own, I'm desperate to find out more about his industry, one that is quite literally a matter of life and death. In Doctor Next Door, I'll be doing my utmost to learn all about Neil as a medical professional, but also Neil as a person. Because, believe it or not, even doctors have lives outside of the operating theatre. But this podcast isn't just here to feed my own curiosities. I want you to be involved in these conversations too. I can't wait to get into this. So make sure you subscribe or follow Doctor Next Door from wherever you usually get your podcasts. Oh, hang on a second. That must be the doctor next door now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
0: Burrow's Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: So the final letter I asked you to write was to somebody who uh, has had an effect on your life who probably wouldn't know that they or, or definitely doesn't know. So who would that be?
2: Okay, I have chosen... This was really difficult. There was two authors that I had to choose between, but I've chosen Mallory Blackman. Honestly, I owe her just an incredible debt. So, Mallory Blackman is the author, like, incredible, award-winning author of many books, often, like, young adult fiction and stuff. So, like, for example, Noughts and Crosses trilogy and, well, lots of other books, to be honest with you. I have quite a lot of them here. This is really important. She basically shaped a lot of like how I think. I think a lot of my critical thinking comes from her books. So I read them when I was a kid, right? And she just shaped something about the way I think, and it's it's never left me. So, the Noughts and Crosses trilogy. For those of you that don't know what that is, if you haven't read it, even as an adult, you should go and read it first of all. And if you're if you have kids, they should also read these books. So Noughts and Crosses is a book it's a trilogy about racism but reversed okay so where she flips the entire thing on its head to educate people and to show how white privilege works and so in her world that she's created which is the UK like like this sort of alternative world black people are in total power they run all the governments they have their own schools like and they are authorities and they're the majority of the police and so on and so on and so on and white people are in poverty, they're struggling, they are oppressed, they are bullied, and they are, you know, uh, discriminated against, they can't have access to good education, and so on. So the storyline is that a very wealthy black girl who is the daughter of the prime minister, or like one of the, like, sort of, the, well, he becomes sort of the prime minister, and the son of their cleaner, who is white, are they like, best friends, and they just they can't be friends they're not even allowed to go to school together and then eventually they develop a relationship and that's not allowed because relationships between black and white people are not allowed and it's just an incredible like so anyway the reason it's important to me and the reason that I think that she needs to know this is because I grew up in an all-white area in a working class all-white mining village where like I'd never even he- heard somebody speak another language. There was nobody in my, like, in, where I lived who was black or Asian. And everybody around really, me. Nobody at all? Nobody.
3: I mean, I'm from Birmingham. I find this hard I find this hard to imagine that, yeah.
2: Yeah, you will. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I bet you do. Because, like, now I, like, I've lived in, you know, cities and towns and stuff where it's super diverse, especially Burton, which it is. But no, like, where I grew up, um, there was absolutely no... It was completely white, right? And it was actually really racist and misogynistic. It was a really backwards place where I grew up. Um, It was like... It was just a very, very toxic place to live. It's one of the reasons why I got out of there as soon as I could. Um, But the racism that I grew up around was so casual and so embedded that I didn't know what racism was. Like, I didn't know... Because how would I have known? because there was no one around like I can't really explain it like the white people around me my family my friends and and everyone that lived on our street and so on were so racist but they weren't I couldn't see them being racist to a real person because there weren't any fucking people so it was all like like conversations so Mallory's books were my first introduction to what racism was and the way white privilege worked and it turned everything on its head, and I remember I got into arguments with my uncle. I got into arguments with the neighbours. I got into like I it just changed the way I thought about everything. It also made me consider what class systems were. So Mallory has a re- she's a very intelligent author, and and she really knows how to build um social issues into young adult fiction. Like it's it's incredible skill that she has. It's like she's educating you, and also her story writing is amazing, and you just get completely hooked into it. And And I just devoured her books, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I honestly think it just changed the way I saw classism, racism, and it... God, I can't explain it. I just... If it wasn't for her books and for the influence she had on me, who would I have been around who would have taught me about racism or what racism was? I grew up in in family and surrounded by people that would... just be like casually disgusting about black and asian and, and people from ethnic minorities even people that spoke a different language i remember walking down the street once when we'd gone somewhere we were in a city somewhere and i was with a family member and we walked past two women who i think now looking back on it were probably speaking polish and as we walked past them my family member literally yelled in their face and mocked them because they were speaking another language and i was horrified but like everyone else laughed who I was with, like, because they thought that was normal. So I just, sometimes I think about the fact that I could be like that. Do you know what I mean? I could still hold those views. Do
3: you think that what you're saying is very, very compelling? And I imagine, again, I don't know Mallory and I don't want to speak for her, but I imagine that she was writing it for audiences like you. I uh, hope so. You (laughs) you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. For an audience of people to help, educate people you know it's like you know to truly educate somebody and, intro- and and literature should be to introduce people to a world they would never know whether it's science fiction or like you know we won't know it because it doesn't exist or like imagination like that
2: really really matters i think she really taught me just so much about how like this constant sort of what I'm now seeing, although I don't particularly like the term microaggression because I don't think they are micro. I think they seem micro to white people, but I don't think they are. But anyway, she uh, she really, the way that she writes that means that she does not leave a single stone unturned. She has got that fucking nailed, that book. It's perfect. And so she, oh God, she's just worked some serious magic with that book. It's incredible. You know, the BBC turned it into a, a, a series. So if you want to watch it, like it's even better. Ba- oh yeah, it's amazing, but um but also um just even if you take the racism out of it which sounds stupid because that's the point of the fucking book, but I meant like like the critical thinking. I think for me. So I read these books at 10, 11 and 12 around, around that that time. And I was an I was just an avid reader. I just devoured books. And I think she gave me a skill at the right time of my life that I still use to this day, which is before I comment or before I consider something or whilst I'm trying to solve a problem, I often almost flick it over and look at it from several different angles and try and figure it out from different perspectives before I move forward or comment or make a decision or anything. And I feel like I sometimes wonder whether it was that book that did that to me because after that, I just often found myself considering things from perspectives that nobody else had ever taught me to do like I can't there is not a single person in my life or in my family or anyone else that ever taught me to think like that so it has to have been Mallory it has to have been so like that's why I wanted to yeah like I guess say that
3: have you ever written to her I want you to write to her now Have you ever written to her? Have you ever...
2: I have, I have, have, yeah. And I did, and also... um... This is why at the opening
3: when I said I felt like you were going to be a prolific letter writer, I was absolutely right. Because so far, every single person you've mentioned, you have already written them a letter. Oh, kind of.
2: uh... (laughs) I, I guess with Mallory, it's that, like, she is so humble about it I, that when I did speak to her because what I actually contacted about was not necessarily about this I contacted her to tell her that I'd got my kids to read it because I wanted to to, wanted to let her know that um, my kids had finished reading a book and that it had massively impacted them and I was just so proud that I'd been able to pass something down that had impacted me so profoundly and then I'd given it to my kids And so she, you know, she'd replied about that and she has been really supportive actually, but I've never really been able, because I don't really, I feel like I don't want to take up her time telling her some shitty story about some mining village where the white people are all dicks. Do you know what I mean?
3: Can I just say, the common thread in this is, apart from Jamie, whose time you seem to freely take up, <laughs> is that you don't you, you don't you don't want to encroach on people's time. Like, do you know when people get in touch with you about one of your books and how much it changed their way of thinking? How do you feel about that?
2: Um, it. I I guess like oh no this is really difficult so it makes me feel like everything's worth it like all the shit's worth it but also so there you go
3: so why do you think that Mallory would feel any different (laughs) I don't know
2: (laughs) I don't know.
3: Like, so I'm now asking you to look at it from a different perspective. I know. Uh, the one that you actually have. <laughs> the actual perspective that you actually have as a writer of books. That I know. Change people's perspectives on I'm not something. a proper author,
2: whereas Mallory's like a proper author. <laughs>
3: I mean, I always think that because I don't write books that are, like, imaginative. Uh, just, I just write down my life. People are like, does it take a lot of research? No, I recognise, Jess, that your books are actually well-researched pieces <laughs> of writing, whereas I just blether on about my opinions. So um, so it's conti- I'm like that. No, Wikipedia is about the top and bottom <laughs> of it.
2: Wikipedia. Um,
3: uh, <laughs> so um, I'm not suggesting that you encroach on her time, but I am suggesting that, you, you know, it wouldn't be a massive encroachment for her to hear that a kid who'd never met any black people it made them change their view and recognize the situation they lived in there you go that took two sentences yeah
2: no I know I know it was it's just a yeah it just made I, I don't know it's I think also though like the way you reacted is that I'm not sure that people realize that in the north those towns still exist to this day that so there are still areas that are like I'm not even talking I'm not talking predominantly white I'm talking fucking all white like Daz white like no fuck like just fucking white people there and so like it's just such a strange place to live and then when I moved away and moved to actually a very very diverse area I just felt totally out of my depth like I, I just didn't really know how to relate to anybody and like that was it like I mean, it's amazing now. Obviously, I'm not like that now, but, like, because we're talking, what, sort of 12, well, 13, 14 years ago now. But, yeah, it's a real unique experience. And um, I just feel like she had such a massive impact on who I was going to be and how I was going to see the world. And she taught me to... I think, okay, so, no. One of the things I think that she taught me was how to be self-critical because I'm good at that. So, I'm good at... So, for example, I'm a psychologist... I am very critical of psychology. I'm not scared of that. I'm not one of those people that defends the system that I work in. And like, you know, like I'm a feminist, for example, but I'm very fucking critical of our feminism. I think a lot of it is toss, right? And and, and some of it is just really misguided. And, you know, so... And some of the people are dreadfully misguided. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So... If you, like, I'm not scared of being self-critical or critical of systems that I belong to. I'm not the type of person that jumps to the defence of some sort of institution or whatever it is. Like, I'm an academic. And when people, like, ridicule academics, I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, like, precious. I, mean, I, I work in Westminster, yeah. so I hear you. Yeah. So, like, but I think that that critical element of the way I think, where I'm not really, like beholden to anything and i'm open to criticizing pretty much anything and that i don't really have any loyalty to particular systems of power or anything like that i think that came from her because i just don't know where else it would have come from really wow i bet she'd be
3: chuffed to hear this so how (laughs) would you sign off a letter to mallory
2: yeah, I guess I would I would say thank you so much for influencing me so young and getting inside my brain at the exact time that I needed you to get inside my brain. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <Aww. laughs>
3: Well, thank you, Jess. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and slightly lecture you about, you know, (laughs) thinking that you shouldn't have a role in people's lives. Uh, I knew you you are actually the only person who has ever come on this podcast who is still actually a prolific letter writer. So you are getting a gold star. Also, your letter of note was one of my favourite ones. (laughs) I really liked your letter of note. I will be more than happy for you to say in Parliament or anywhere that it's all bollocks. So thank you so much for coming on. It has been a total pleasure. Oh,
2: thanks for having me. And thanks just thanks for asking me to do it. It was really lovely to be able to do it, actually. So thanks.
3: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod.
1: Goodbye.